Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for and help edit, Premier Christianity. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, that's premierchristianity.com. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to the General Director of the Evangelical Alliance, Steve Clifford. Steve, welcome to the programme. Thank you. It's great to be here, Sam. So why can't Christians agree on what we actually mean by the term evangelical? Oh my goodness, that's it. Going in at the deep end. <laughs> deep end. You know, I, I, I'm not absolutely... I think on the, on the big questions, uh, I think we're pretty much in agreement. Uh, you know, we're, we're about the Bible, the authority of Scripture. We've got a very high view of Scripture. Uh, we believe it's inspired by God. Uh, a very high view of what happened at the, clo- at the cross... Um, you know, Jesus' atoning death that took, took place, that amazing event which we kind of know as Easter. Uh, we're passionate about people coming to know Jesus, into a relationship with Jesus. And we're kind of activists, you know, the, kind of, the, the phrase that was used to describe uh, in the 18th century, the Whitfields and the Wesleys were the, the enthusiasts. Mm. Well, we're kind of pretty much the enthusiasts. So I actually think, Sam... We can make a lot of some of the minutiae of what we might disagree on. But mm-hmm. actually, I think the big picture, we're pretty much in agreement. Sure. Right? And that's a good introduction to your latest book. It's called One, and it is about unity in yeah. the church. Would you say it's looking at unity amongst the sort of evangelical part of the church? Or are you thinking more broadly in terms of church unity? For example, you know, we as Protestants being unified in some way with Catholics. Yeah, no, it's, it's primarily talking about as an, us as an evangelical community. Uh, the book does go wider than that. Um, but particularly it's looking... It, actually, it's, it's pretty much my story. Mm. Uh, I, I came back from holiday uh, last year uh, and I, was, I just felt God had, had challenged me to write a book on unity because mm. I think actually it is something that's on God's agenda at the moment. And so a long story, but pretty much in just over a month and a half, uh, I wrote this book. And as I began to write it, I realised um, I was really telling my story. Uh, if I was serious about unity, right. it, I had to be prepared to look at what has happened in me mm. personally, what it means for Anne and I, and being my wife, what it means in our household with my children, those that have lived with us over the years, what it means in my local church, but also looking at you know some of the real issues of you know me working together with women. Uh, discovering the breadth of the church which crosses ethnic divides, uh, looking at disagreements and how things, how we handle disagreements, uh, looking, at, looking at the breadth of the issue of unity, but very much from a personal perspective. And, uh, and actually, as the book's coming out, I'm feeling quite vulnerable because there's quite a number <laughs> of stories in there that I've not told right. publicly before. Wow. But I felt... It, with integrity, if I was to write this this kind of book, I had to be prepared to to share something of what God has done in me. Yeah, that's great. Well, we maybe we'll have time to to dig into some of those stories as we go today. But uh, here on the profile, we always like to go back and ask people about their early life um, growing up. So, tell me a bit about your family background. Okay, so born and bred in Bradford in Yorkshire. Uh, Although I have to confess, I, I've lived down in the south for far, far too long now. Uh, you know, I, I, I am known to have a bath as opposed to a bath, a bath. <laughs> uh, and I laugh rather than laugh. Oh. And you know, so, and, and I, I tried with my two kids. I desperately tried the, to get them to go up paths rather than paths. <laughs> but but hey, you know, I, I'm, def- I'm I'm born in Bradford in Yorkshire. Uh, I my, my father was a vicar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were in uh, an inner city parish in the middle of Bradford, quite a poor area. But uh, tragically, my dad died when I was five years old. Mm. And, uh, and that was you know, major implications for us as a, as a family. I and mean, again, I, I go into it in the book and talk a little bit around uh, the death of a father as a mm. five-year-old. The, 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 for us, would we have a house to live in? Because, mm. of course, we're, we're, we're living in the church house, the man's, right, yeah. uh, well, the vicarage. Uh, and, 
we didn't own it. My mother was a, a kind of a live-at-home mum, so um, what, where was the money going to come from? And uh, and I remember coming down the stairs. He was killed by a drunk driver, and uh, that next morning, coming downstairs, and my mother taking me and my brother to one side and saying that uh, that my, our dad's gone to be with Jesus, and uh, I couldn't because I didn't have any, you know, mm. what yeah. does that mean? Yeah. Uh, and we we didn't we didn't go I didn't go to the funeral my brother didn't go to the funeral so we we didn't really handle grief well then as a church in fact my mother just recently died and even you know, to the end of her day I'm not sure she ever really faced mm. the death of our father um, and or my father and uh, and so for me the the discovery of God as a father. Mm. Was, was a really pivotal revelation. I know when I became a Christian, I found it easier to talk about um, God as the creator, as the Lord, as the master, but the Abba mm. God, which Jesus invites us to pray to, I, I, I just really struggled to, mm. to get to that place. And uh, I, there was a, a, a moment when I just knew God was putting his finger on that issue. Mm. And I remember in my bedroom struggling. It seemed like for hours, Mm. um, really trying to come to that place, that place of revelation that God wanted to be dad to me and and stuttering over the words and eventually getting to that place. And I think for for me, the revelation of God as Father God, Mm. yes, alongside Lord, alongside Creator, is absolutely pivotal to my relationship with him. Mm. So yeah, brought up in Bradford, lost a, lost a father at a, at a very early age. Um, and so I, there was faith, in, a lot of faith in my family, but by the time I got to early teenage years, there wasn't a lot of faith in my life. And uh, I, I kind of was into, loved sports, uh, was, was kind of pretty much you're enjoyed very, school. You are very good at sports as well. I mean, it wasn't just you liked it. I understand you were competing at a fairly high level Yeah, at one point. reasonably good. Tell I was me a, a bit about of, that. A bit of a goalkeeper, okay, yeah. So yeah. I kind of played at Hampton Park and, you know, kind of with our local school boys. And so a lot of, a number of the guys that I played alongside were uh, turning professional uh, and yeah, so to, sport was you know cricket in the cricket in the in, in the summer, swimming, table tennis, you name it. If it was yeah. sporting, I used to take part in it. Uh, uh, but I, I actually got a job between between A level years, and uh, I, I, I decided I was going to work the other side of the border. So it's quite dangerous in those days to go from Lancashire, from Yorkshire to Lancashire. But I got a job in Lancashire, and I thought it was working on a farm. But it turns out it was a farm that was attract, attached to this Christian conference centre called Cape and Ray Hall. And, and I, I went along there, and one evening uh, I was dragged along to the uh, <laughs> to the chapel. And uh, I sat in the chapel, and, and I don't know who it was who was speaking, but I can remember what he spoke about. And he spoke about Jesus' death on the cross. And, uh, you know, Sam, I'd, I'd heard it before. <laughs> I, I couldn't quite have explained it the way he explained it. But that evening, deep, deep down in the core of my being, I just knew it was true, mm. that, that Jesus had died the most painful death possible on mm. a cross. Yeah. He died for me, for my sins, for the sins of the world. And because of that, there was a possibility of me having a relationship with God. Yeah. And that, that evening, I made that decision to be a follower of Jesus. Mm. And uh, 17 years old at that particular time, but everything changed wow. from that moment. And, uh, and, and, and so that, you know, I went back to Bradford. I connected into a church uh, and uh, very grateful. It was an independent Methodist church. Very grateful for the care that they had for me. I went off from there and worked with you for the mission in, in you Scandinavia. Did. Yeah, and, and certainly since then, you know, you've had many church roles. You went to um, London Bible School, now London School of Theology. How would you now, though, describe your calling? What, do you, what would you say you are now called to do? You know, when people ask me, what Steve Clifford's about, I, I say, you know, right at the very core of who I am is I'm a church leader. I, mm. I'm just passionate about this thing called the body of Christ, the church. And, and 
I'm aware of our struggles and our failures and we don't always get it right and, mm-hmm. and we can be a bit weird, <laughs> weird at times. But I, I'm just convinced that it's God's idea, mm-hmm. the church, the family of God. We get to pray our Father. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I'm convinced that it's God's primary agent of, tr- of transformation for the world. That's mm-hmm. how God intended it to be. So I'm about church I'm passionate about church. Over the years, I've been involved in church in all kinds of shapes and sizes and you know, involved in leadership of church and overseeing churches and planting churches and doing leadership training in the context of church. But even in the, in the setting of the Evangelical Alliance where I am, I am now, we define what we're about mm. as serving the church. Mm. Very good. Would you say you've ever had any serious doubts about your faith or has it kind of been plain sailing since that conversion experience you mentioned? It's it's not been plain sailing. There have been really hard times that I've faced personally, we've faced as a family. Has that caused me to doubt? I don't think it has, Sam, really. Mm. Um... I, I think deep, deep down, I, I am convinced there really is a God. And that God is manifest as Father, but also as Son, Jesus, and in the, as, a, as the Holy Spirit. And that co- deep conviction... I mean, you do wake up some days, don't you? And you, and you think, oh my goodness, mm. you know, how do you explain the world that we're in? Are you really Lord of all creation with all that's going on? You do have those questions, but I don't think it's ever got to the place where I have doubted mm. that Father God that I met mm. there at Cape and Ray Hall when I was 17 years mm. of age. Yeah. I wanted to um, just focus in on one of the many projects you've been involved in over the years. You, know, you talk about this passion for, uh, for the church and you know, a massive event which really captured the attention of a lot of Christians, certainly evangelical Christians in this country, was March for Jesus, which really became an international movement. For those who haven't heard of it before, perhaps for those who are kind of my age, maybe in their 20s. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, never heard of Graham Kendrick. <laughs> <laughs> Not even heard of Graham Kendrick. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone's heard of Graham Kendrick. But, uh, but March for Jesus specifically, you know, for someone, as I say, of my age, it's amazing to, to read about that time. I'd love to hear from you as one of the organisers. Just, just give us a bit of a, a bird's eye view of what that movement was, of what happened and the significance yeah. of it. You know, I, I, there are a few occasions in, in my life when I, you, you sense you've got caught up in something that is far bigger mm. than any of us that were involved in it. And March for Jesus was one, was one of those things. Um, and and it, I'd love to say, you know, we, kind of, we sat down and we strategized and we prayed and came <laughs> up with this great idea, which was about to become this kind of worldwide movement, because it became a worldwide yeah, movement. Yeah. I mean, 180 countries, 60 million people in, involved in it. So a phenomena, actually. And, and I, I think a gift from the church here in the UK yeah. to the world yeah. still continues to the day. You're going to go to South America, you get millions of people still marching wow. for Jesus. This is incredible. But, you know, how did it start? Well, well, actually, it started with, with a kind of bright idea to have a prayer event in the city of London. In fact, the idea originally had been to have it in the, in the, in the meat market. Okay. And then we kind of went and visited the meat market. <laughs> Let me tell you, the meat market smells terribly. You've got all these stalls there. Yeah. It would have been impossible. It's a bit, so we, bit messy and a bit bloody bit as well, bloody. right? <laughs> exactly. So... So we said, oh, well, well, anyway, we're going to do it. So we're going to do it. And we decided we'd meet outside, yeah. actually outside the, the market. Yeah. And we'd, we'd go around the city and we'd pray different spots. Now, we, we, we just put a few adverts out and, and telling people it was going on. And, um, and I remember driving into London that day and I was living south of London. And... Uh, it was as if someone in heaven was taking buckets and just pouring it over London. It was absolutely torrential <laughs> rain. And I'm driving into London thinking, oh, this no. is just going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to turn up. Yeah. Anyway, 15,000 people wow. turned up in the pouring rain. Uh, and they, they didn't march for Jesus. It was called the City March. But we just, it was one of those moments when you th- said, you know, God's in this. Mm. And the year after... We remember to pray for the weather. <laughs> we had what was the very first March for Jesus. 
uh, and it was in 1988. Yeah. It started in the embankment, and it was over 50,000 people t- yeah. turning up to pray through the streets of London. Yeah. And it was just extraordinary. Yeah. I, I can remember to this day standing on the embankment, just a little stage there, and seeing people coming across the bridges and filling the embankment. And we, yeah. we were hearing way down the embankment. They were having to stop people coming out of underground stations because it was all chock-a-block. And we, we marched and we prayed and we went through into, into Hyde Park. And you just realised this, this was of God. Mm. And we began to, to take it on from there. Yeah. And other people came from other parts of the world, from mainland Europe initially. And then it just spread mm. all over I the mean, place. I mean, it's incredible in, in scale, as you say, all, the, all those people making a sort of public stance for their faith and, and the March for Jesus kind of movement that that became. And, and around a similar kind of time, you know, you know, a couple of decades ago, three decades ago, you'd have perhaps even Billy Graham filling stadiums, preaching these, these large scale events where, you know, many people became Christians, where there was this outward demonstration of Christian faith. Arguably, there isn't so much of that around, certainly in the large scale events. I mean, you know, sadly, you may have heard there was a, uh, a Christian men's event due to take place in a, st- in a stadium um, in, the, in the north of England, which has been cancelled because of lack of ticket sales. I mean, is it just not possible to do those kind of large-scale events anymore? I, I think it's different these days. Um, I, I think there is actually, at a local level, far more expressions of unity mm. than we were seeing back there. Actually, I, I was just reflecting the other day, I, I, I wonder whether some of the prayers that we were praying then, because we, we, we were out of our buildings... Mm. We were forgetting the labels that we that we you know carried with us, whether it would be a Baptist label right, or an yeah. Anglican label, and we were just marching as the church and we we're praying for our communities. And I, I think, Sam, at a local level, we are seeing some extraordinary things taking place mm. of the unity of the body of Christ, and uh, that's part of my sense, which is. God's agenda for unity mm. at this moment of time is something that we've got to take very seriously. Mm. And so I, well, we talk about what's called unity movements at local level. Mm. And um, they're, they're all over the country. We right. have this, this initiative that we kind of support, which is called Gather. Um, and uh, this is about uh, in towns and cities all over the UK, Christian leaders, and it's not just church leaders, but it includes church leaders, coming together, praying together, often eating together, building relationships with each mm. other, having a sense of what God's agenda is for their particular uh, community. Mm. And then so much of the activity that's happening at a local level mm. is coming not as indi- not as individual churches doing a food bank or a night shelter or debt counselling, but actually churches collaborating together uh, in order to be able to do that. So I think it's different to how it was in the 80s and 90s. Mm. But I think in terms of the significance of these unity movements, I think it's extraordinarily important. Mm. You, you mentioned there building relationships, and I noticed that Pete Gregg recently tweeted that 85% of his time as a pastor is spent behind the scenes building teams. It's not preaching, pastoring or praying, just choreographing relationships is how he put it. I imagine that could be perhaps what your job looks like as well, heading up the Evangelical Alliance. Is that true? Choreographic relationships. Peter and I go back many years. He's a good friend of mine. I just love that phrase. It's I very have to use that delicately put, isn't it? Yeah, choreographic relationships. It sounds like a dance, doesn't it? Yeah, I, it definitely is. Yeah. You know, when I when I took on this role and and. and I frankly didn't see it coming because you know I'm I'm a, come out of a new church setting, March for Jesus, Soul Survivor, Soul in the City, Hope. Those were all these these kind of things that I've been uh, involved in, and then just extraordinary a sense that God was asking me to make myself available to take on this role, mm-hmm. this 170 year old organisation yeah. um, with an, a wonderful heritage. Mm. But what does what does somebody like me? How does somebody <laughs> like me fit into this? And, 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 and it was so important and continues to be important that I nurtured the relationship across the breadth of the evangelical community. Mm. And um, the, the first year, 18 months, I just spent so much time mm. sitting down, having coffees and teas and meals with you know, the, the numerous expressions of evangelicalism. Mm. And I just discovered this richness. Mm. Um, the, the richness in in the, uh, the ethnic minority church. Mm-hmm. Um, very early on, we had what was, was kind of ca- called a council 
and it's the kind of it's the it's the influential leaders of networks and um, organisations that come together. And we were looking at unity mm. actually, and a, a couple of wonderful church leaders, one called Pastor Agu mm-hmm. uh, of Jesus House, another called Bishop Wilton Powell of the New Testament, of the Church of God of Prophecy. Mm-hmm. And they came and they spoke to our council and they just brought a really strong mm-hmm. challenge to us. That if we were serious about unity, it had to be unity that crossed mm-hmm. all ethnic divides. Yeah. And uh, as they sat down, silence mm. came over these 60, 70 people that were in the room. And I tell you, that doesn't happen all yeah. that often. And somebody put their hand up at the back and they said, we just sense God has spoken to us and yeah. we need to kneel yeah. and we need to pray. Yeah. Uh, we need to perhaps repent yeah. of some of our attitudes. And uh, it was one of those God moments. Yeah. And uh, coming out of that, uh, we, I spent you know, a great deal of time building relationship with the migrant church, with the ethnic minority church. Mm. Wonderful expressions of church being done right across the United King- Kingdom. Wonderful leaders doing some fantastic work. We, we, we estimate probably 20 to 25% of evangelicals in the UK come from the migrant church. Mm. And uh, part of our response to this was we start what's called a One People Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work with a wonderful pastor called Pastor Yemi, uh, and uh, we kind of look to ensure that the Evangelical Alliance is changing mm-hmm. so as to reflect the ethnic diversity yeah. that's there. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that, because on the uh, the cover, actually, our cover story of the March issue of Premier Christianity magazine, um, the headline was The Great Divide, and we're looking at what we would say is a divided church in the UK. If you go to something like the Festival of Life, you know, 40,000, 50,000. I, I, <laughs> I know you go. I've seen you there. You know, 50,000 Christians there having an all-night prayer meeting at the Excel Centre. And yet myself, as a white Christian, had no idea that even existed because mm. it's not my church culture. It's not my church heritage. And on the flip side, you go to something like Spring Harvest, perhaps, or New Wine, and it is predominantly mm. white. So it seems that the evangelical church it is really divided along ethnic lines. So... There's a, lot of, there's a long way to go, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I think, I think we're making progress. I think we're making significant progress. I think relationships are being built. Um, our council looks very different from the council that it was mm. five years ago. Um, our, our publications, the working groups that we have are far more diverse. And it's not, it's not African or Caribbean. It's also Chinese and South American and Southeast yeah. Asian because the breadth breadth of the migrant church is mm. enormous. I think at a national level, relationships are being built. Mm. And that's where it starts for you. It starts with those relationships. Well, I'd like it to be starting at a local level as well. Right. And I, and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that we're sensing we've mm. got to give attention to. Yeah. That what, what's happened at a national level has to be outworked at a local level. And, we're, and, and I think we're beginning to see it Mm. But I would love to see more of that taking place. You know, where we're, where we're, we're swapping pulpits, mm. where we're inviting one congregation to come and visit another congregation and, in, and, 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 and enjoy the diversity of the expression of worship mm. and ministry in those settings. Where, well, and I think it is happening, mm. but more of, of we're working together on the ground. I think hope has been, a, a, has, has again led the way in some of those initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, street pastors, mm. you know, kind of Les Isaac has done a, kind of an extraordinary job, job uh, in, in street pastors, and, and so many uh, kind of, of, of those street pastor initiatives are very, very mixed in mm. ethnicity. So, but I think there's a lot of work for us to do, so I, 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 we mustn't relax. Because uh, if we're serious about unity, it has to be a unity mm. that crosses ethnicity. Yeah, and certainly, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in your book that focuses on that, and you've mentioned some of the other challenges of unity, you know, areas the church needs to be unified in. Would you say there's one major challenge that stands out for you looking at 2017, looking at the evangelical church in the UK? You know, where's the main threat to our unity? Where's that coming from? I think it's... I mean, it's easy for us, Sam, to talk about the, um, the human sexuality debate. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I've covered a little of the challenge that we face as an organisation in that. The danger is that that can become one, you know, the lens that we view everything through. Mm. Um, I actually think um, 
there are, I'm, I'm not decrying that, mm. but I think there are bigger things mm. that we've got to give attention to. There, there is a nation, there are millions of people across the United Kingdom that need to come to know Jesus, mm. uh, need to have an opportunity to come into a relationship with him. The, kind of, the challenge of, I'm convinced, the making Jesus known challenge mm. is the greatest challenge the church faces uh, in our generation. It probably always has been. Sure. But the, the Talking Jesus research, um, which um, we were part of, uh, of sponsoring, uh, I think has, has shone a light both in terms of the opportunities that we have. I think there are millions of people out there that would love to have conversations with us about faith. Mm. Uh, they won't always accept it, but you know, we, there's an opportunity for us to talk about Jesus, to yeah. make Jesus known, to share what Jesus means to us with those who don't know him. Um, and I, I think that's the challenge that mm. we've got to rise to. And if we can keep that as our focus, that's, yeah. that's the main thing. It's making the main thing the main thing. Absolutely. If we can keep that agenda then maybe some of the other stuff will become less important to us absolutely well that's a great place to leave it for the end of part one but join us again in a moment we're going to be hearing more from steve clifford from the evangelical alliance about church unity and his new book join us right after this the profile you're listening to premier christian radio Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This programme is brought to you in association with the magazine I write for and help edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like a free sample copy of our latest issue, you can get one for free. Just head to our website, premierchristianity.com. But now on The Profile, it's time to speak to the General Director of the Evangelical Alliance, Steve Clifford. And Steve, we, um, we talked a lot in the first part about church unity. You've got a new book out on the subject. It's called One. And um, of course, it's an it's a interesting year to publish a book on church unity. We're marking 500 years since the Reformation. Um, there's going to be a lot of celebrations later in 2017, I understand. Is it right that we celebrate it? Um, or should we apologise for it? Because the, uh, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, he has made some noises about apologising for the sort of war and conflict that came out of the Reformation. And so I think a lot of evangelicals are asking, well, should we hail this as a great victory where we rediscovered the importance of the Bible? Or is is there something to be ashamed about? Yeah, I mean, we've just recently um, produced a hard-worked statement uh, on the Reformation. And if you go to our website, uh, then we'd love you to be able to read it. We worked really hard on it, actually, mm. Sam, because it's, it's, it is the, the challenge is to get the nuances right. Yeah. There is much to be thankful for mm. in what happened in the Reformation. Thank, thank God for the, you know, the fr- fresh discovery of the importance of, of Scripture. Mm. Thank, thank God for some of the challenges that were brought about the, the medieval church and the kind of indulgences and some of the, that stuff um, that was, was in that. Th- thank God for Luther mm. um, and such an influence, not just into the church, but, you know, frankly, into the whole of society, yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Uh, much that we have today, five year, uh, 500 years on, is because of what happened at the, at the Reformation. Clearly, things were, were hand, not handled well. Things yeah. went wrong and, and, and there's probably things that we ought to uh, just put our hands up and say we didn't handle that well mm. on both sides mm. in, in, that, in that particular debate. So, you know, it, there's a, a, a lovely statement that we've worked on. I hope it's helpful <laughs> uh, just reflecting on what to be thankful for. Yeah but also some of the things that, that we need to be challenged on. But just to, to go back to, the, to, to this year, mm. I think actually the unity agenda is God's agenda. Right. Yeah. And I think there's something that's happening that is good to note. So this year, uh, it, over 20 festivals and events this year, there will be moments mm. when the kind of evangelical community will celebrate our, our unity together. And all these different festivals, I mean, right. Spring Harvest is, you know, is going to devote the whole thing to unity. Yeah. But each one of these different festivals, from the breadth of evangelicalism, mm. are affirming through some prayers and some songs and some statements and some visuals. And there's this great scroll mm. that's been taken from one festival to another, which celebrates our oneness, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, in different festivals, we'll put a, a thumbprint um, on the scroll, and it'll be a, a state 
statement of our, our recognition of our togetherness as part of the body of Christ for the sake of the mission of mm-hmm. God. So, so thank God for, for, for that, festivals. But also in September, over 40 leaders from, again, the breadth of the church will be in a hotel in Windermere for 24 hours. <laughs> uh, and it will be the follow-up to an event that took place in 2015 okay. when we are asking the question, has God got something to say to us not as short term, you know, the challenge for us as a church looking for the next five years or 10 years, actually thinking towards 2050. Mm, wow. And again, I, I referred to the talk in Jesus research last time. That piece of research was produced for the 2015 gathering. Mm. And we're really asking when we come together, could we put some benchmarks in place, some goals thinking towards 2050? And whether, whatever the expression of the, of, the, of the church it might be, how could we own those goals and work towards those goals? And then the final thing, well, yeah, the final thing to mention is in October, this event called Movement Day, where these local expressions of unity movements from all over the country will be coming together into London, uh, meeting at Westminster Central Hall, and dis- endeavouring to learn from each other as to what unity looks like at a local level. So I, I think there is much to celebrate this year in terms of God's agenda for unity. Very good. And um, I wanted to, to dig in a bit more because obviously unity is a massive part of of the Evangelical Alliance, you know, you you aim to bring Christians together. And secondly, it says on your website, you also aim to help Christians listen to and be heard by the government, media and society. You know, some people would say that the government in this country doesn't really care too much about what evangelicals think. I mean, you compare, for example, evangelicals in this country to America. Now, in America, it could be argued that this sort of voting block of evangelical Christians can sway and has swayed elections we aren't really that sizable in this country. So when it comes to talking to government and perhaps even talking to media and society, a lot of people, you know, as Christians, we might even say, does anyone really care? Does anyone want to listen to us? And I imagine you as an organisation grapple with those kind of questions. Yeah, no, think, no, how, do do. We get, how do we get the message out? Yeah, I mean, a big part of our work, I mean, we, we exist to serve the church. We want to see a church more united in its mission, but also more confident and effective in its voice. And that's the bit that you're talking about, the advocacy Mm. work that we do. Um, And so we have a team, uh, a team that's working to speak to the media. Yes, actually, that's an important part of of voice. Uh, And and also to speak to politicians, to to civil servants, Mm. to ministers. So our team working in Westminster or indeed working in the assemblies are in and out all the time of having these, these conversations. Mm. The degree to which we're listening to, I think it varies. I mean, I think there are, there are to be honest, Sam, there are certain conversations that go, that go on mm. that we can't go public about. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the agendas that are around at the moment, the, some of the, around anti-radicalisation, around out-of-school hours, some of the potential threats to religious liberty mm-hmm. here in the UK, it's really important that we take seriously the work yeah. of advocacy yeah. and are looking to influence the shaping of legislation mm. at the early stages. Because, frankly, once it, once it gets the, the, the point where it's being voted on yeah. in Westminster, it's, it's hard to influence it at sure. that stage, yeah. as we know. It's easier if we can get it at an earlier stage mm. and shape the legislation that's coming forward. So mm. it's a challenging role. We've got some, uh, you know, some fantastic people Mm. doing some extraordinary work working very long hours to try to be an influence to try to speak on behalf of the evangelical christian community actually yeah would you agree that evangelicals in general over the last decade or so seem to have become more interested in engaging politically i mean it wasn't too long ago that politics was was seen widely from christians as a kind of dirty area we shouldn't touch and yet there does seem to be more and more organisations, yourselves included, saying, actually, as Christians, we need to engage. Do you see that as a, as a positive thing, that Christians seem to be a little bit more politically engaged and switched on? Yeah, I think, I think we've opened up to the importance of this issue. I mean, the Evangelical Alliance has been doing it for years, um, but I, I, I think um, the church as a whole has recognised we can't separate ourselves mm 
from these kind of agendas. Otherwise, you know, the kind of society that we're praying for yeah. and looking <laughs> for isn't going to happen. Yeah, sure. Um, we need to be prepared to get our hands dirty. Thank God for the people who are called into active political engagement. There are some, there are some wonderful Christian MPs, mm. civil servants, you know, kind of working away day in and day out. It's some of the dirty work, actually, mm. um, of, of politics. And it needs of people like ourselves to be able to help and support them in that so yeah. I think I think it's on the church's agenda and I think we need to be praying for them and supporting them in it you mentioned earlier that this this new book contains a lot of you and your personal stories in it and there's actually an intersection where some of your personal story intersects with us as a magazine with Prema Christianity magazine um, and I'll let you tell the story but in a nutshell there was a, a disagreement between the Evangelical Alliance and Oasis the charity founded by Steve Chalk um, particularly over the issue of gay marriage and sexuality. And obviously we as a magazine, we, we sought to sort of feature both sides of that viewpoint, um, with Steve taking what would be termed a more liberal or progressive position um, and yourselves ultimately taking a more uh, traditional or conservative position that says that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Can you unpack that? Because I think it's in the chapter where you talk about unity can be tough. There can be real disagreements. It can yeah. be very difficult. Um, looking back now, how do you reflect on that episode? Because, of course, that ultimately led to Oasis no longer being part of the Evangelical mm. Alliance. That, that must have been quite painful. <laughs> Extremely painful, yeah. Uh, I mean, w- when I took on the role at the Alliance, one of the things I said, I don't want to spend the next 10 years of my life talking about human sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I got away with it for about the first five years. <laughs> uh, and then my, my friend, and he is a friend, Steve, Steve Chalk, um, was, was about to publish an, uh, an article in Christianity magazine. And uh, there were all kinds of conversations that took sure. place at that time. Mm. Uh, of course, it was, it was right in the build-up to the vote uh, on uh, the legalisation of gay marriage or the kind of legitimising mm. of, of, of gay marriage and uh, redefinition of marriage. There was a kind of... The church was pretty united, actually, on it. You know, the kind of the Coalition for Marriage had mm. drawn in a lot of support. Yeah. Um, and so the timing on it was extraordinarily challenging for us and painful actually yeah and so there were lots of conversations with 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 christianity magazine around the timing of it well i say lots of it there were some conversations Mm. with you guys about it and uh, in the end of the day the article was published um and we were then faced with kind of working through the implications of that Mm. which eventually as you say resulted in in oasis Mm. um being, tes- being removed from membership yeah. in Alliance. But I, th- I think as well, you know, on a more positive slant on this, you could argue, I think a lot of evangelical Christians, although it was difficult and painful, were pleased that a body which represents them had taken an issue, even had taken a stance on an issue, even, you know, it was a very divisive issue, but I think a lot of evangelicals felt like, well, we need to have an evangelical line on this. And you guys obviously took a, what would be termed traditional conservative position on this. Would you say, though, that is becoming more and more difficult, just culturally? People would say they're not only in favour of gay marriage, but it should be celebrated, it's now legal. And, of course, any organisation that in any way opposes that, such as yourself, just looks more and more outdated, backwards. Is that a challenge? Yeah, it is, it is definitely a challenge. I mean, I, I'm, I am very grateful that before all this happened, we'd already published something on the subject. We, we have a theological commission, uh, and uh, we call them TAG, uh, and a theological advisory group, and they had already produced something, right, which was yeah. called a biblical and pastoral response to homosexuality. Uh, and uh, that was a really well th- thought through high level of kind of engagement in mm. terms of theological engagement and, and, and socio-political type of engagement on it. Um, and so when this all blew up, it was great to be able to refer to something that we'd already done mm. um, rather than a knee-jerk reaction um, to what was being, uh, what was being published. Yeah. You, you know, Sam, the, the kind of the bigger question, which is the engagement with wider society... Mm. Um, you're right. There is a new social orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. We are having to learn. We've lived on the right side of social orthodoxy, if I put it in those yeah, terms, sure. for centuries. Yeah. Now, as a Christian community, I think we're having to learn the lessons of how to live on the wrong side of social orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And um, how do we get engaged mm-hmm. with culture? Uh, I, I, I kind of I, I like to explain it like this. 
Let's just imagine for a moment that there really is a God um, and that he's the creator God. Let's, let's Im- imagine that this creator God um, actually has views because we, kind of ha- we kind of assume that the creator God would have views mm. on what's best for society, what's good for the best for the flourishing of humans within society. Let's imagine that that this creator God who has views actually gave us those views in a written form. We kind of call it the Bible. Now, mm. I actually believe all those, those things. Um, followers of Jesus tend to believe those things. <laughs> and I suppose one, one would have to assume that such a book, which does exist, mm-hmm. um, would actually challenge all cultures mm-hmm. throughout all history and wherever one found ourselves on the world today, one would expect that. So I don't think we should be surprised if, if we do find a book mm. called the Bible that challenges us in regard to human sexuality. But not just in challenge of human sexuality, it challenges mm. in regard to our money. It mm. challenges in our views of the environment. It challenges on, on, our view, on our relationship with the poor. I mean, there's many challenges this book presents yeah. to us but it presents a challenge to us as to how we view ourselves mm. as sexual beings, mm. whether we're heterosexual or whether we're, we're gay. Yeah. One more question on this topic, because you already, as you already mentioned, you don't want to spend the rest of your life talking about one issue. And it's a practical question, because you mentioned the Coalition for Marriage, and indeed many evangelical Christians got on board with a campaign you helped run to sign a petition against the legalisation of gay marriage. And of course, that campaign failed. Uh, gay marriage is now legal. It's more than legal. It's widely celebrated and adopted by society. So if you are an evangelical who signed that petition against gay marriage, practically and politically, what's your next step? Do you say, this is now legal, we've lost this particular battle, we need to accept that? Or should there, should there be a carrying on in, in campaigning and trying to reverse this? No, I, I, when we came to the end of, end of this debate and we lost the vote, and I, I remember the moment <laughs> when it all happened, uh, I, I said to, to our team, we, we're not going back into bat on this issue. I think it, it has, has moved on. Um, that's not to say that in future generations there might be a revisiting of that. And it doesn't either mean that we, we have to accept how the government has redefined marriage. Uh, one of my reflections on what took place is that, that for, for centuries, the church and the state have been in partnership for the delivery of a service. We mm. call it the marriage service. One of the parties decided to redefine the partnership without the agreement of one of the party, the other party. Right. And uh, we... We do, do not have to accept what, how the state defines marriage. I do not accept how the state defines marriage. I still understand scripture to tell me that marriage is about a man and a woman committing themselves to life, for, for life, to each other, the thing that we call marriage. We'll move on. But um, from one difficult subject, perhaps, to another one. Oh, my goodness. But it's, it's important to cover because I think it has very real implications for how we use this word evangelical. We've got to talk about Donald Trump because um, there was an interesting debate during that campaign here in the UK. Some people were saying that actually, as UK church leaders or Christian leaders, you need to speak up about Donald Trump. Because this isn't just some American political issue. This is a moral issue in some of the things that this man has said. Um, you know, there were even calls at one point for the Evangelical Alliance to release a statement on an American president. And, you know, you quite understandably felt like that wasn't your role. But but is there more that should be going on? I'm thinking particularly in the UK, amongst evangelicals, should we be speaking up about the American president and particularly the American evangelicals who 80% of white American evangelicals voted for this, for this man? Yeah, we, Sam, it's, a, it's a, a discussion that we have had for hours at our end, as to how we should respond to it. Um, frankly, I, I couldn't have voted um, for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, but many of our brothers and sisters in Christ mm. in North America yes. um, did choose to vote for him. So I think it's important that we we hear that, mm. we respect that, even though we might disagree with that, and mm. they voted probably on issues... Um, that would not be the issues that we would want to go to the ballot box about. 
but I don't want to be disrespectful to mm-hmm. them. And I don't want to be disrespectful for a democratic process that resulted in the election. He might not have got the majority vote, but he, by the system that they operated, yeah. he got elected as president. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is something about respect for a democratic process, even though we might not like it. And, mm-hmm. and, and scripture you know, exhorts us to respect, mm. exhorts us to pray for. And the early church was exposed to different, you know, a, a political system which was, was, was far worse, if I put it in those terms, sure. yeah. than a president that we might not like called Donald, Donald Trump. So that, but yet they were still instructed by the Apostle Paul to pray for them, to respect those that are in authority. So I think we have to handle this with great care. Now, I think there are certain issues issues as opposed to the person that we can speak into mm-hmm. and I think we can bring a challenge to mm. and I think we just got to just I think we have to handle ourselves with a with humility mm. in this and some some care and I, I I get somewhat nervous as I read social media as to the way some Christians feel it's okay to talk about someone who God loves mm. the president of the United States yeah it's, it's an important point I mean I've I've seen perhaps some of the conversations you're mentioning uh, and people do feel quite able to, um, in general, on social media, be quite vitriolic. I mean, I know the Evangelical Alliance released was it a ten, 10 Commandments for Twitter <laughs> some time ago, which made for really interesting reading. And this is a kind of new, new area for Christians in general. Um, social media is still relatively new for us to get our heads around that there are ethical and moral questions how do we use this platform for good yeah. I mean, one question is how do we use this platform for evangelism because I think a lot of people certainly my age will look at the bible verses on sunsets and think is, it, is this the best way of doing it yeah yeah I agree, and, 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 and I think we, we're still in the early days, aren't we? This is, we're, we're exploring new territory uh, I think we've got to prepare to experiment but it is it is pretty dangerous territory at times mm. you know the kind of the, the level of vitriol that there can be in the context mm. of, of social media um, can be quite a, can feel like an unsafe place mm. to engage but I think I think we've got to be prepared to find ways of doing it um, but I think we've got to be, be doing it in such a way as that we're not twee we're not giving easy answers yeah we're, we're prepared to I think there needs to be a place of humility. I think we have to be prepared to model a different way of engaging than, than so much of what takes place in mm. this incredibly noisy space, mm. which is social media at this yeah. moment. Time. Just one more final thing on Trump, because the, the reason I mention him is because of the number of people who will call themselves evangelical Christians in America who voted for them. I want to know, does this have implications for perhaps myself as a Brit using the word evangelical? And I think this relates to the alliance in the sense that when you're speaking to the BBC, that BBC journalist might be thinking, oh, yes, evangelicals, they're yeah. the 80% in America, white evangelicals in America who voted yeah. for Donald Trump. So does this in some way reflect badly on myself? Does this reflect badly on me as a Brit using the word evangelical? It can do. I think we, we've got to... Um, I think we do need to keep defining ourselves mm. uh, and finding words which, which express what we're really about. Mm. Um, and, and, and actually, I, I, what is interesting on the evangelical word, word is that I, I've noticed how that word evangelical is being used in certain settings, which actually I want to identify with. I had a friend of mine, and he works as a branding expert, and he just finished a branding exercise with a West End uh, company. And they were doing the kind of end of the, kind of the, the, the project, drinks and chat. And uh, one of the, the kind of West End guys... Uh, from the company said you know what what we need now having done all this work is we need to find the evangelists <laughs> that will go out and talk about the brand yeah and of course I think yeah that's exactly what I want us to talk so what he was saying was yeah we want the enthusiasts yeah. we want the people who are passionate about this thing we want the people who believe in this mm. now that's who we are yeah we? we're, we're, the, we're the enthusiasts we're the passionate it's 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 the enthusiastic passionate mm. church that is growing across the UK yeah you know frankly the nominal church is dead. Yeah. You know, the, 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 death, the death of nominalism is something that we've, we've tracked over the last 50 years. Yeah. It is passionate followers of Jesus. Yeah. 
evangelicals that are growing. Sure, but you know, Tony Campolo sat in that chair a few months ago and told me before Trump was elected that already the term evangelical in America is is dead because it's associated with people who are pro-war, who always vote Republican, and Tony Campolo is neither of those things and said, I can't use the word anymore. So... Is the word is it time for it to change? Because his argument, of course, was that we used to call ourselves fundamentalists, and you or I wouldn't use that term now because that means something else. So, is you know, what do you think about that argument that says yeah. the time is the time is now for a new word? You know, you know, Sam, I, I, I you can imagine we've talked that through so so many times. You know, should, should we continue to be the evangelical alliance? There is a rich heritage of evangelicalism mm. that I don't want to to, to walk away from, mm. but I think we have to keep saying. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. We are the passionate followers of Jesus. We are the enthusiasts. We're, we're the ones that are, are, want people to come to know Jesus and have a relationship with him. That's, mm. who, that's who we are. Yeah. And, and we've got to get our body language right mm. as well as the, and our tone of voice right as well as the words that we speak. So looking ahead then, uh, the future of the, of the UK evangelical church, are you hopeful? I am. I am hopeful. Yeah, I am. I think, you know, every week uh, we do a conference call uh, as a group of leaders at the Evangelical Alliance. It is rare that when we're on the call together, we are not hearing of people coming to Christ. Really? I, I, think, I think I am hearing of more people coming, becoming followers of Jesus today mm in UK in 2017 than I can remember in, the, in all the time that I've been involved in, in public ministry. I mean, we, we've got a, this initiative which is called the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission website. It's just, it's just a resource that we're producing to support the Making Jesus Known mm. agenda that we're, we're passionate about. And uh, on there, every Monday morning, there's a story of someone who's recently come to Christ. Just a little video clip, two and a half minutes. It's just so encouraging to hear it because you can live under, if you're not careful, the kind of the, the, the mindset is the church is dead, the church is declining, nobody's becoming Christians these days. I, I want to challenge that. I just don't think that is true. People are becoming a Christians in all kinds of different ways, and there's not there's not a prescriptive one way of it happening. Mm. It's happening in all kinds of churches, in all kinds of different ways, all kinds of backgrounds and ages. But the gospel still works today. Mm. And I think we need to celebrate that and, and start telling another story. Because the danger is we start believing the negative story if we're not careful. Well, that's a great place to leave it. A hopeful note to end on. So thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. Thanks for having me.